This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zakheim, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Reagan Institute Policy Director Rachel Hoff sits down with Tong Yi, a Chinese human rights advocate, participant in the 1989 student protests in Tiananmen Square, and survivor of a Chinese labor camp. More recently, she testified before the U.S. House of Representatives Select Committee on Strategic Competition between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party. Rachel Hoff and Tong Yi discussed her activism and courageous personal story, as well as the human rights situation in China today and how the United States should address the CCP. Well, hello and welcome to Reaganism. I'm your guest host, Rachel Hoff, the director of our Center for Freedom and Democracy here at the Ronald Reagan Institute. And I'm so delighted to introduce you all today to Tong Yi. Um, I'd like to begin our conversation today by having you give our listeners a sense of your own courageous activism, uh, the inspiring personal story, um, and also, you know, later in the podcast, we'll shift gears and kind of talk a little bit more about the situation in China today, about your views of what the United States should do in its own competition with the Chinese Communist Party. But if you wouldn't mind, just tell our readers a, a bit about your own upbringing and childhood in China. Um, what was it like growing up um, during the Cultural Revolution under, under Chairman Mao? Yeah, I was born in Wuhan when Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution was at its peak of frenzy. There was armed violence in the streets. My parents worked in a state-owned factory, and every day after eight hours of work, they had to attend so-called class struggle sessions. Under this exhausting routine, they found it hard to take care of my sister and me. So they sent us to live in a rural village with my maternal grandparents and a number of other relatives. I lived there from age one to four and seldom saw my parents because the trip from Wuhan was too expensive for them. I don't have much memory of those early years. When my sister and I moved back to Wuhan, our family of four lived for eight years in a single small room. Meat and clothing were rationed. I wore hand-me-downs exclusively, but I learned not to complain, and in fact, could claim some virtue for it, because Chairman Mao had issued a command to combat selfishness. Everyone in China suffered similarly, although it must be said that we city dwellers suffered much less than those in the countryside. And after growing up in, in that rural environment, what sort of sparked your, your interest in, uh, in politics and, and kind of your awakening in the political sense? I was in second grade when Chairman Mao died in 1976. And the immediately ensuing years saw some drastic changes in China. The Maoist Gang of Four was deposed and Deng Xiaoping, who wanted a shift from Mao's policies, maneuvered his way to supreme power. In Beijing, the democracy war movement in 1978 to 1979 kindled the hopes of young people, but I was still too young and too far from Beijing to know about it. When I was in high school in Wuhan, Deng's reform and opening policies had made a difference. There were more goods on the market, 
the rationing system was discontinued, our family got a small black and white TV. Every evening, we could watch a half-hour news program, five minutes of which was international news. It showed foreign leaders visiting China, but it also showed our country's top leaders when they went to foreign countries. And when that happened, we could see things in the background about what the outside world was like. Right on TV, I could see that Western capitalist society did not resemble the living hair, hell, hell, and Marxism, Leninism said it was. To me, both the wealth and the ways of the West looked to be way ahead of China's. I began to doubt what my teachers were saying in politics class. When President Reagan and his wife Nancy visited China in 1984, I saw a glimpse of their images, which struck me as truly elegant and impressive in all respects. Reagan's three talks were not carried on TV, so I couldn't hear them but I was an intensely curious teenager and wanted to know more about the Western world. So I knew I would have to learn English well. I had a shortwave radio clung to it every night to listen to English programs broadcast by Voice of America or BBC, which came through despite a lot of jamming. I learned a lot not only about pronunciation, vocabulary, conversations, but also about popular songs, movie stars, and current events. I became extremely interested in international affairs. In the local library, I happened across translation of Richard Nixon's book called Leaders, and reading it left me fascinated by figures like Winston Churchill, Golda Meir, Li Kuan Yu, and Chiang Kai-shek. I decided that when I went to college, I would study political science, which at the time was a brand new field in Chinese universities. This bucked a trend because all the smart students then were opting for math or science or engineering. I was good at math and science, but I puzzled my teachers and parents by insisting on political science for my college major. I was the only one in my graduate graduating high school class to do so. Hmm. It's so interesting to hear about, you know, the whether it's President Reagan's visit or the importance of American broadcasting and kind of tuning you into to what was happening in the world, or even President President Nixon's book. When when you finally uh, went to college and were studying political science, that was a very important time in, in China's history, of course. You were a student during Tiananmen Square and, and during the student protests, the demonstrations, and, and then the subsequent crackdown from the Chinese regime. Share with us, if you would, some of your reflections on what you witnessed at Tiananmen Square and, and the impact it had on, on you individually and, and also for the democracy movement in, in China. Yeah, the curriculum for students at the Chinese University of Politics and Law in Beijing, where I went to college, emphasized law even for those of us who declared the political science major. 
We all took constitutional law, criminal law, contract law, and other such courses. The more I studied, the more I could see that law and reality in China operated on two different levels. At the same time, in the mid-1980s, books by Western thinkers, Sigmund Freud, Max Weber, Bertrand Rousseau, and many others were streaming into China through translation. Liberal Chinese thinkers like Liu Xiaobo were attracting huge crowds of students on campus. Liberal-leaning newspapers and magazines published views that dared to stray from orthodoxy. I continued my listening to shortwave English programs. My university was relatively small and compared to the giant campuses where natural science was emphasized, we were close knit and more attuned than others to things like protests, which were already popping up on college campuses and everywhere. The large students' demonstrations of spring in 1989 in Beijing was sparked by the sudden passing of Hu Yaobang, a former general secretary of the CCP who had been purged two years earlier for giving too much support to liberal intellectuals and the protesting students. Students felt frustrated that a liberal-minded leader would die while a crusty old guard held on. Spontaneous mourning broke out on a number of campuses. Students at my campus were among the first to march to Tiananmen. When police beat up one of our classmates, we became the first group to organize a student strike. From then on, I was fully engaged in the protests, right up until the massacre. On the night of June 3rd to 4th, 1989, I was part of the crowd of Beijing people, not just students, at an overpass a few miles west to Tiananmen Square. Tanks and armed soldiers were advancing from the west. Citizens had arrayed about six or eight buses across a broad avenue to block them. When PLA soldiers arrived, they removed the buses amid a rain of random gunshot directed into crowds that were shouting curses at them. Two people standing near me crumbled to the ground, shot. Quickly, two passing motorcyclists stopped and the drivers helped the victims. Everyone was helping everyone that night. Like many others, I never imagined that the People's Liberation Army would kill the people. I felt fear, but the fear gave way to anger. For me, the CCP totally lost legitimacy that night. I decided right then to become a dissident. I was not alone in this kind of reaction. Nothing ever gave a sudden boost to China's democracy movement quite like that massacre. Well, I'm, I'm sure that wasn't what the Chinese Communist Party quite had in mind. They, they maybe didn't anticipate the bravery that you and so many of the students and protesters who were there at Tiananmen um, would continue in the aftermath of that of that massacre and that that it would have 
um, sort of a mobilizing effect in that way, inspiring so many to become dissidents. When you think back on Tiananmen all these decades later, why is it that you think the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, or the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, uh, reacted to the protests in, in that way? Yeah, the highest priority of the CCP throughout its years of ruling China, even before then, has always been its own power. It nervously guards an ability to remain in absolute control. In spring 1989, a split within the top leadership between hotliners like Deng Xiaoping and the reform-minded leaders like Zhao Ziyang led to a few weeks of indecision. But in the end, Deng rallied his old guard and opted for brutal force. His purpose was not just to end the demonstrations, but to frighten the whole country into never daring to do such a thing again. Following those protests and, and that initial crackdown, you worked closely with a Chinese human rights activist named Wei Jingsheng. Tell us a bit about his story and your work together, um, even, I think, meeting with some American officials during that time. Yeah. After I graduated from college in 1990, I stayed active in dissident circles in Beijing. In 1993, Wei Jingsheng, who had been sentenced to a 15-year prison term in 1979, was released six months early as part of the CCP's campaign to win, to win Beijing's bid for the 2000 Olympic Games. Wei's fame aroused during the Democracy War Movement of 1978 to 1979 when he had challenged Deng Xiaoping's policy of the full modernization of agriculture, industry, the military, and science, by daring to say we need a fifth democracy. Wei's name was immediately expunged from the state-run press, so we in the Tiananmen generation did not know who he was, who he was until he resurfaced in 1993 amidst international accolades that he was something like China's Nelson Mandela. A mutual friend introduced me to him. When he learned that I could speak English, he asked me to interpret for him. When Bill Clinton won the U.S. presidency, we dissidents were very excited. Clinton had promised not to cuddle the butchers of Beijing, as George H.W. Bush had done. At the same time, the U.S. Congress was debating whether to continue most favored nation trade status with China, given the CCP's dismal human rights record. Western journalists and American political figures were both seeking Wei Jingsheng's views on these questions. And the U.S. Embassy contacted me to arrange meetings with Mr. Wei for U.S. dignitaries. They did this without going through the Chinese government, which the regime resented. I accompanied Wei to meet with Congressman Chris Smith, Senator John Kerry, and Assistant Secretary of State John Shaddock. Mr. Wei constantly advocated for American pressure, 
on the CCP, including the conditions of trade privileges on CCP human rights performance. Our meeting with Mr. Shalak alarmed, alarmed the regime, and we were both arrested soon afterward. Afterwards. Well, following your your arrest, you were you were sent to a Chinese labor camp for for more than two years. Um, to the extent to which you're you're comfortable speaking about it, what was that experience like? It it's something that's so far from from the experience of our listeners. We're we're very fortunate in that sense. Um, so I'd appreciate it if you can just give us any um, you know details about what that experience was like for you and what you suffered at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. I have many friends who have spent time in detention centers or jails in China, but none of them had experiences that quite resembled mine. This might have to do with gender. It may be that female prisoners tend to be more pliable by camp authorities and therefore endure harsher treatment. The first big shock for me at the labor camp was the extremely long workday that inmates were forced to accept. Our work was to pluck threads from scrap clothes to make thread bundles that could then be soaked in oil and used to clean machinery. Each of us was assigned a daily production quota and was unreasonably high. If you failed your quota, your sentence would be lengthened or alternatively, your family could buy your deficit at the time of your release. There were no weekends or holidays. The food was poor and we were deprived of sleep and allowed little time to clean ourselves. I had studied law in college and knew that it was technically illegal for the camp to be requiring more than eight hours a day of work. We were working 12 or more. I protested, and for that, the camp authorities organized other inmates to beat me up. The beating was terrible for two nights, then tapered off. Eventually, I was able, with the help of a fellow inmate, to smuggle a note about my condition to my mother, who faxed it to a human rights organization in New York. Voice of America broadcast the story. Other media picked it up. Zhang Shadak asked after me on his next trip to Beijing. And with all that, my treatment in the camp improved dramatically. At least in that era, the Beijing regime could be embarrassed. It scapegoated the policewoman who were on duty at the time I was beaten, as if it had been her judgment and not a routine of the camp to administer such beatings. Well, among other things, that story really speaks to to um, the the role of your your mother in in your release and and the power of the fax machine, which will be a, a lesson to our younger listeners in in particular, the technology of the time. Um, you know, as tragic as it is to hear the story of your time in the labor camp, it's it's really inspiring to see how you've continued your your advocacy for human rights in China since then, despite that experience. Maybe as you said, with Tiananmen in, in, in part because of that experience. Um, I'd love to shift the conversation now to talk a little bit more about what today's Chinese citizens face uh, from the Chinese Communist Party. 
You testified uh, recently before the U.S. Congress, before the House Select Committee on China, um, and you spoke, among other things, about the the recent protests that have happened around China against the lockdowns uh, related to the zero COVID policy. Could you tell us a bit about this movement? Uh, it's become known as the the white paper protests. Tell us a little bit about that and what similarities or differences you see um, between what's happening now and the previous dissident movements in China. Okay. The seed of the white paper protests was planted by a brave man named Peng Lifa right before the CCP's 20, 20th Party Congress in mid-October of last year. He unfurled a banner calling for no COVID testing, no lockdown, no lies on a busy overpass in Beijing. The message resonated widely. He predictably was immediately disappeared. The trigger of the November protest was a lethal fire in a high-rise apartment building in the city of Wulumuqi in Xinjiang. People there had been locked down under a zero-COVID policy that prevented them from fleeing the fire. And the issue reverberated all across China because of misery the lockdown was bringing to everyone. And at that level, still at a level still deeper, young people were protesting a political system that could allow the whim of one muddle-headed dictator to cause such widespread harm. To complain at this level was dangerous. So as a way of protecting themselves, the protesters had a blank piece of A4 paper. To the police and to their fellow citizens, they were saying, you know what I mean, and we know what you know it. Uh, we know that you know it. Mm -hmm. On similarities to Tiananmen protests, in both 1989 and 2022, the protests were nationwide, occurring in many major cities and reflecting widespread discontent. In both cases, the young protesters were idealistic and felt it's my duty to stand up for people's rights and against the totalitarian regime. On differences, the Tiananmen movement lasted for more than 50 days, while the white paper protests lasted just a few. One reason for this difference is that the CCP has better surveillance equipment today and the police force that smothers opposition more quickly. Another reason is that the top CCP leadership in 1989 was split. Today, it is under a single iron fist. The numbers of white paper protests were smaller than that at Tiananmen in 1989, but their individual courage must be seen as greater because the CCP's digital surveillance had become much stronger by 2022. And everyone knows this. Another notable difference was that at this time, the white paper protests, the majority of the protests who were later detained and arrested were female. This was a first for China. In the end, the white paper protests won in their key demand, which was to dismantle 
the zero COVID policy in China. Within two weeks, the CCP opened up the whole country. Many Chinese got infected, but life finally reverted to pre-pandemic patterns in freedom of movement. This was a victory for the protesters. In the time since then, the CCP has tried to erase people's memory of their draconian lockdown policy and claim victory instead. The world should not forget who helped the Chinese people out of their extreme difficulties. I want to read a, a particularly poignant section from the testimony that, that you submitted to, to the U.S. Congress um, and ask you to elaborate on it. So, so you said, a note on this word, people. The Communist Party repeatedly uses the word peoples to label things that it, the party, owns and runs. Thus, we have the People's Daily, the People's Liberation Army, the National People's Congress, the Great Hall of the People, the People's Currency, the People's Courts, People's University, People's Central Broadcasting, People's Communes, and above all, the People's Republic of China. The repetition is necessary precisely because the claim at the bottom is a fraud. All of these things do not belong to the Chinese people, but to the Communist Party. Only a lie needs to be hammered home in order to stick. The truth can stand on its own. End of your quote. And it reminds me of a quote from President Reagan, actually, when, when he traveled to China on that trip you mentioned in 1984. He was describing to Chinese students, um, your colleagues at, at a university in China, and he, when he was describing the American political system, he said, quote, we say of our country, here the people rule, and it is so. Mm -hmm. Your quote demonstrates that that is certainly not the case in China. That's why they need to use that rhetoric and hammer it home. Um, reflect, if you would, about how the Chinese Communist Party uses and abuses that concept of, of people. Yeah, in CCP speech, speak, the word people means obedient people. If you misbehave, you no longer belong to the people. You are the people's enemy, when in fact, you are only the CCP's enemy. For example, a few days ago, two human rights lawyers, Mr. Ding Jiaxi and Mr. Xu Zhiyong, received heavy sentences of 12 years and 14 years, respectively, for subversion, subversion of state power. They sacrificed their freedom in order to advance freedom for ordinary Chinese people. The CCP uses the word people to claim legitimacy for its rule. But this is a lie. The most numerous and long-suffering victims of the CCP have been the Chinese people themselves. I want to talk now about what, in your view, the United States should do about um, all of these, these actions, activities, the challenge that, that we face from the CCP. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the U.S. and a lot of American politicians um, calling right now for banning TikTok. Uh, and in your congressional testimony, you raised alarm about another Chinese app called WeChat. Um, tell us a bit about what WeChat is and why you're so concerned in particular about WeChat. 
Yeah, the Chinese version of WeChat is something that Chinese people almost cannot do without. It plays an essential role in the Chinese daily life. During the pandemic, a WeChat account was necessary for the monitoring of one's activities, without which a person could not go anywhere in daily life. WeChat is also used for chatting with friends, making purchases, hailing rides, and ordering meals. Because it does not allow any platform that does not conform to CCP orthodoxy, it serves in effect as a propaganda megaphone for the regime, and it keeps records of every user's data worldwide. WeChat is not independent of CCP. When the CCP asks for data on a person or an organization, WeChat must comply. It is a surveillance tool that puts the CCP in a stronger position, even than Big Brother in George Orwell's 1984. For the Chinese diaspora around the world, WeChat provides a convenient and free way to keep in touch with friends and family inside China. At the same time, it keeps the CCP regime stay well informed about a person's business or academic, uh, academic contacts worldwide and about a person's friends and relatives inside China. Recently, for example, some parents of Chinese American cadets at West Point formed a WeChat group that was allowing the CCP to keep tabs on and potentially leverage over US soldiers of the future. For another example, a top Chinese American professor in the STEM field was recruiting more than four-fifths of his graduate students from China year after year, and they all were using WeChat to discuss their academic and personal problems. The CCP has this data and keeps it. In the future, it could easily use it to steal intellectual property or co coerce Chinese students co to cooperate. Not long ago, a student organizer at the University of California wanted to show a documentary about human rights abuses inside China. He sent out an announcement of the showing by WeChat. And shortly thereafter, his parents in China got a visit from the local police, warning them not to let him do it. Because the CCP can use WeChat to threaten friends and relatives inside China, most overseas Chinese self-censor when using WeChat. For those who don't self-censor like me, WeChat cut off access to China. Our posts cannot be viewed inside China. WeChat does serve as a one-way propaganda megaphone for the CCP to address Chinese communities around the world while forbidding anti-CCP views from reaching inside China. To argue that WeChat or TikTok should be allowed in the US on the grounds of freedom, freedom speech is exactly upside down. To bundle the TikTok question together with regulation of all other social platforms in the US is entirely the wrong approach, in my view. 
WeChat sounds like about 90% of the apps that I use on my phone uh, all in one. And so in that way, I can imagine it, 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 like you said, can be an incredibly powerful uh, form of surveillance in the wrong hands. When, when it comes to this surveillance, when it comes to technology or ideology, what is it that you think we as Americans need to understand about Chinese culture, about Chinese tradition, about Chinese ideology to help us think uh, more about how we can strategically compete with the Chinese Communist Party? Chinese are not fundamentally different from people in other countries in their yearnings for freedom and prosperity. The CCP's claim that Western-style democracy does not fit well with Chinese culture is spectacularly rebuffed by the splendid example of Taiwan. To China, Marxism and Leninism Leninism is in fact an alien ideology. The CCP borrowed it from Europe. When the CCP took power in 1949, they moved sharply against the freedoms of speech, the press, assembly, and religion. After suffering these limits for decades, the CCP finally began in the 1980s to allow one single arena for freedom, the money-making arena. To a freedom-starved populace, making money any way one could do it became a secular religion. For the last three decades, due to foolish China policy in Washington, especially the ushering of China into the WTO in 2001, the CCP-ruled economy in China has expanded at the expense of the U.S. economy. As a consequence, the political legitimacy of CCP rule has also relied indirectly on U.S. support. Under Xi Jinping's rule, the CCP has used its economic muscle to be more repressive inside China and more aggressive outside China. Now that the world has woken up to the nature of the CCP, to its flaunting of WTO rules and norms of international order, to its crimes against humanity in Xinjiang, its threat against democratic Taiwan, and so on. Western countries and their allies should stand up to it. They should limit dual-use technology exports to China, lest they help to fund their own destruction. Should move to dismantle the CCP's firewall that keeps the truth from reaching Chinese people and should protect Taiwan from attack. When it comes to that competition between the free world and, and the CCP in so many ways, you've, you had an um, aspect of your testimony that talked about kind of a tit-for-tat approach would be the best and most effective way to go after the CCP. Tell us what, what you mean by that, a tit-for-tat approach. Any person anywhere can grasp the principle of reciprocity. Confucius himself said, Don't do to others things that you don't want them to do to you. When the CCP does not allow Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and other U.S. apps to enter China, the U.S. should have the right to ban TikTok, WeChat, 
or other CCP apps in the US. When the CCP bans academics or journalists from China, the US should do the same to Chinese counterparts. Congress should pass a CCP reciprocity law addressing internet apps, visa rules, airline access, and other matters. The existence of such a law would have a deterrence effect on the CCP. Beijing would need to think twice before acting aggressively toward the US. For the past three decades, the US has been overconfident that its superior system naturally would be emulated by the other side. But the mafia-like group on the other side has not seen things that way. It has accepted US handouts and turned them to a different use. By now, the resources and economic power controlled by the CCP with its totalistic command of China exceeds what the non-totalistic federal government in the US controls. To find the most effective way to counter the CCP is therefore urgent. Another recommendation that you made in your congressional testimony was for the US to fund programs uh, to help break down the great firewall that you mentioned earlier. What would those programs look like? We, we hear a lot about virtual private networks or VPNs in China. How, how common are those and, and how should we address the problem that even if somebody can circumvent the great firewall through, through a VPN or other means, the most truthful information that they might want to engage with is, is probably in languages other than Mandarin or Cantonese? Dismantling the Great Firewall would crucially increase free, the free flow of information to ordinary Chinese people. As they begin the uh, uh, begin, they perceive uh, the web of lies uh, of the CCP that uh, that CCP has feeding them. Ordinary people in increasing numbers will doubt the CCP's legitimacy and join opposition movements. Better information flow to China will play a big role in building a free China in the long run. I don't know the number of people who use VPN to scale the Great Firewall, but I believe it reaches to millions per day. Most of these are people who are highly educated and care about politics and truth. Some of them can read English and some cannot, but they are the kind of people could find Chinese versions through machine translation, if no other way, of what they want to read. A US-sponsored dismantling of the firewall could have long-lasting beneficial effects. Maybe, for example, introducing Starlink to cover China's internet without you know, being um, the need to use a VPN. That might be a method. We've talked um, about a few things that you'd recommend the U.S. government do with regard to China. What do you think about the American private sector? Um, you know, there's kind of a, a narrative that private sector companies sometimes overlook issues related to democracy and human rights in China in particular um, because, you know, it might sacrifice or cut against their opportunity to profit 
uh, from access to the Chinese market. Um, do you have any thoughts on kind of how we might modify incentives of the private sector and encourage them to play more of a, a role in in um, in this human rights dialogue? Yeah, so far, the American private sector hasn't played much of a role in supporting democracy or human rights in China. In recent years, we have seen the chief of the NBA and a number of high rollers in Hollywood kowtow to the CCP. I agree with Senator Marco Rubio when he says, capitalism has not changed China. China has changed capitalism. In the early 1990s, during the debates in Congress over granting most favored nation trading status to China, both Wall Street and Silicon Valley did the CCP's bidding for no fee. They were clamoring to enter what they saw as a huge, huge Chinese market where they could reap handsome profits for years to come. 30 years later, many have seen their hopes dashed by manures of the CCP. Western companies were forced to share intellectual property, capital, and know-how with Chinese counterparts who took what they wanted, legally or not, and run to use it in CCP-owned competitors. Examples are legion. Sweet talk at the beginning, take over by the end. The CCP always has had the advantage of being able to break con contract terms and to rewrite rules at midstream. China's GDP jumped from less than 5% of the US in early 1990s to 62 in 2022. This was achieved with much help from Wall Street, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the American universities. During the same years, the US lost 7 million manufacturing jobs and saw many middle-class communities be hollowed out. I can only hope that the dangerous situation unfolding around Taiwan Street will finally wake up all of Americans' private companies that do business in China. Congress should pass laws forbidding pass passive investment of the pension funds of ordinary Americans in the CCP-owned assets. The media should shame any CEOs who continue to avert their eyes from human rights disasters in China in order to carry favor with the CCP. I believe that private sector CEOs and decision makers in the US are intelligent and persuadable people. We should stoke their patriotism and encourage them to recall people like the German industrialist, Oskar Schindler, who 80 years ago woke from his profit-seeking and began saving Jewish people from gas chambers. Today, too, we live in a challenging time. Well, as we wind down our conversation today, as you know, we conclude each episode of Reaganism with what we call our Ronald Reagan lightning round. Um, for this, we ask our guests to share with our audience their favorite book on President Reagan, their favorite speech by President Reagan, and their favorite quote from President Reagan, Tongyi, you can share with us all three, just two or one of those uh, answers. 
I I haven't read a lot of books um, on President Reagan, but I did read his autobiography. I found it excellent. But for favorite, though, I would name William Imboden's new book about Reagan's foreign policies called The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The War on the Brink. This book is so well-researched and narrated wonderfully. It reads like fiction. There are many parallels between Reagan confronting the Soviet Union and the need of the U.S. to confront the CCP today. I hope this book can stimulate bipartisan effort to do what needs to be done. For the favorite speech, I liked the Tear Down This War speech delivered in Berlin in 1987. I find the speech especially moving because of what I said a few moments ago about needing to tear down the CCP's great firewall today. But my favorite quote from President Reagan was delivered in 1977 before Reagan became president. He said, my theory of the Cold War is that we win and they lose. We are in Cold War II today. We need that same attitude to confront the CCP. Thank you. Well, Tang Yi, thank you for your work um, to, to affect that outcome. Thank you for your courage, your insight, and for being with us today. And thank you for our listeners for your time as well. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend. Mm-hmm.